Oh my God. <sighs> Thank God that you're actually here, David. I am freaking out over here. Uh, hey man, what's going on? Okay, so uh, to catch you up, you've, you've, you, you've seen the Instagram pictures of me like building this like machine thing. You know how smart I am and how handsome I am, but also how smart I am. And I have been trying to make this thing actually give me suggestions on movies that I want to see. I wanted to build my own algorithm. This is the machine that was going to help me do it. Small little hiccup. Uh, it has become sentient. Long And even longer story short, it really wants to initiate Armageddon. So uh, I thought to assuage it, I would try and, and you know, butter it up. You know my personality. I'm pretty, pretty charming uh, as well. All these modifiers that that uh, describe me, Kyle Marshall. And so I have gotten it down to if we review movies okay. that it suggests to us, okay. uh, then it won't initiate World War III. Okay. So basically what I'm asking, are you down to talk about some movies that this machine is going to give to us? Okay. You can't say no because you're already here being recorded. <laughs> well, all right, let's... Uh... Let's get on this ride. Last thing, can you help me move this thing uh, in, inside? Uh, well, since I have so many muscles in my uh, torso. In the podcast world, your muscles actually grow by 10%. So. I feel it. <laughs> I actually feel it right now. Let's uh, let's use my superhuman strength. Great, yeah. Lift with your back. Straight uh, with your back. Uh, ah. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. That did take a lot longer than I thought it was going to, but we're here, we're ready, the mics are placed out the way that we need them to be. Let's see what it is going to print out for us. So let me just push this button. Oh, it is very, very angry, but it is spitting out, it's spitting out this receipt. Let me just take a look at it here. Oh, apparently we're supposed to talk about Varsity Blues. Oh, fuck. Wait, are we allowed to swear? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Machine, Mr. Machine, are we allowed to swear? I could not care less. I'm going to say that's a yes. So vindictive. How can we start with Varsity Blues? I, I don't make the rules here. That's just what it says we're going to do. What's your, what's your history with Varsity Blues? Well, I'll quickly say I haven't, nor will I ever want to watch that. Uh, are we going to call it a film? <laughs> I think technically it is a film. Oh, I'll have to ask Martin Scorsese first, but I'm pretty sure it does constitute a film. But if it's for the fate of the world, I guess we can... Uh... Take one for the old Gipper is what we're going to do. <laughs> Damn it. All right. All right. Let's do this. Let's go and take a moment and watch this movie. And then when we return, we'll, uh, we'll give a good old talking about it. In America, we have laws. And it's just accepted that as a member of American society, you will live by these laws. In West Canaan, Texas, there is another society which has its own laws. We woke up in the twilight zone. West Canaan. Sex and football. That's all there is. <laughs> hey, Mark! Let's roll! <laughs> Dave, I had to, you know, track you down here on one of my off days. I, I just found out that apparently the machine is a better booking agent than I am because they contacted Karen Unland of the Alberta Podcast Network, and now we are part of the Alberta Podcast Network. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Kyle, couldn't you have waited until I woke up? I mean, it's really early in the morning, man. Can you? Uh, yes. This is, this is your fault for leaving your window unlocked, so I can enter anytime I want. Well, that's why it's un unlocked, Kyle. All right. Well, there'll be a further conversation off mic on that. But my, the assignments have already come in. So first off, we need to thank 
the Alberta Podcast Network itself. Now, you know, Dave, for being part of the network yourself with your podcast perspectives, that the Alberta Podcast Network is powered by ATB, and the Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. How do you feel about being on the network? The network's great. Karen, who designed and built this thing, has a, an amazing goal of uh, getting Albertan podcasts to survive the deep winters of our country uh, and the podcasting world in general. And I've really enjoyed it. Now, to put you on the spot, who would you say has the best podcast on the network? Uh, uh, I don't know, actually, since, as you know, I don't listen to podcasts, but it probably is Kyle Marshall. That'll be my vote, uh, Kyle Marshall. Great. I'll, uh, your, your money, your check is in the mail. Uh, our other sponsor this week is the aforementioned ATB. I want to talk a little bit about the branch for arts and culture. Have you been to that branch before here in Calgary? Yes, I attend the adjoining uh, Phil and Sebastian, adjoining and unaffiliated Phil and Sebastian's a lot. And when I realized uh, after they had set it up that there was a gallery in there and I've actually, I've actually talked to uh, some of the representatives, it's a pretty amazing space, frankly. Yeah, it's it's a pretty awesome little location. And what, what I love about it is the fact that the people who work out of that branch is, yes, it's a bank, but it is populated by people who are like former musicians, fine artists, uh, photographers, like there is a lot of cool people that actually work out of that branch itself. But it's a place designed for creators, by creators. It's a place that understands the challenges artists face because those that work at the branch are artists themselves. So uh, if you are in Calgary, it is located on Stephen Avenue. The Edmonton branch is actually located in the CKUA building. So if you want to you know, start your own radio show, you have that opportunity as well. So thank you to our two sponsors this week. Let's get back to our regularly scheduled program. Oh, okay. Well, we watched it. We did, we did the dang thing. That was a lot of uh, information. It was it was a lot of uh, visual information for sure. Um, I felt like I was back in the late '90s. I was on the football field. That's what they call it, right? You played football, Kyle. I do, and I still don't know what any of the terms are. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit. So during while we were watching it, uh, the machine here has printed out basically a double CVS receipt here for me of information. And it really wants us to communicate this to our listening audience, whoever that may be. They can't listen with their eyes, Kyle. (laughs) Well, here it is. Varsity Blues was released January 15th of 1999. The two other major releases that were released that weekend were At First Sight, starring Val Kilmer and Mira Savino. It was directed by Erwin Winkler, written by Steve Levitt. Have you seen At First Sight at all? You're the biggest Val Kilmer fan I know. Is that the one where he's blind? I don't know. You know what? (laughs) Probably, just based on the title. I feel like I have seen that. No, wait, this is uh, being recorded. There's no way I've watched that film uh, officially. (laughs) Before podcasting, I saw nothing. So, (laughs) Uh, The other major release was Virus, which starred Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Sutherland, directed by John Bruno, written by Dennis Feldman and Chuck Farrer. How about Virus? Have you seen the movie Virus? No, I have a strong aversion to horror. I think that was like a science fiction horror movie where somebody in- inevitably becomes a monster or something like that, right? Is that Does that say anything about your psyche, do you think? Well, that's <laughs> an episode onto itself. All right. Well, we'll wait. We'll wait for Sweet Week before we bring that out. Currently, Varsity Blues is rated 6.5 on IMDb. Too high. 50 on Metacritic. Too high. 41% on Rotten Tomatoes. Higher than I thought. That is the critics rating. The average viewer rating on Rotten Tomatoes is 76%. Currently available on iTunes and YouTube for rental or for purchase. I don't know how this machine knows all this information. It's it's amazing that it's... uh, that on the pulse with all of our streaming services. I'm still trying. I am so brilliant. (laughs) Me, the inventor of the machine that is very much right next to us. I am so good at what I do. I'm owned by Disney. I'm still trying to process 76%. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't make the rules here. I just play by them. So starring James Vanderbeek as Mox, John Voigt as Coach Kilmer, Paul Walker as Lance, 
Ron Lester as Billy Bob, Allie Larder as Darcy, and Amy Smart as Jules. So here's, I guess, some... Let me just ruffle this receipt here. Yes, okay, so this is just some background information as far as what these actors were kind of up to at the time. Okay, James Vanderbeek. He had a few TV show appearances before this movie, but his only other movie credit had been Angus in 1995, which had co-starred Kathy Bates. He was also in this movie, I Love You, I Love You Not, which was a romantic comedy that starred Claire Danes and Jude Law in 1996, uh, as well as he starred in a movie called Harvest in 1998, which was about farmers beginning to grow marijuana in order to keep their farms running. Which, why he hadn't broken out sooner, we will never know. But by far, his biggest role was of Dawson in Dawson's Creek, which had only debuted three months before this movie came out, which I'm sure the producers were like ecstatic about <laughs> the fact that the biggest TV show on the planet had just come out and he happened to be the star. Uh, it was a huge show, especially in its first couple of years. Uh, but since that time, James has done a bunch of TV guest appearances, a few TV movies, and is expected to play himself in the Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Oh, you know, the one thing I'll note in hindsight is that uh, as a 1999, uh, 20, 21 year old, I would have. Oh, I see. As a 21-year-old in 1999. Right. Okay. I, I would have seen that Dawson's Creek uh, manifested itself would have an adverse reaction to that and then this movie would come out and i would have thought that they were related mm -hmm. but now i know that movies take a hell of a lot longer to build so it's fascinating that he had already been kind of a selected person yeah. to be in this film and then also was going to become this tv star well yeah you know well yeah i think some of those things just happen kind by of chance. by happenstance and by huh. chance i mean who was it it was um I was recently listening to this interview with Edward Norton and how just randomly in his first year, he was in like Primal Fear. Uh, and then right after that was in um, Fight Club and some other big, oh, American History X. Right. All happened within like a year or a year and a half of one another. And it's like, I didn't plan it for that to happen. It just kind of happened that that's what I was cast in. So sometimes it just, that's just the roll of the dice. It's weird too, because that really set Ed Norton up for huge expectations that every year he would be in three seminal films and he's a great actor but i think it must have been a burden on him over the last i think so too i think when you when you're that big that quickly then it's it's hard for you to ever <laughs> reach that same level ever again i'm guessing though that you never partook in the dawson's creek no i uh will never I did okay, not. Wow. Will, no, I think I have watched a quarter of some episode because I have some visual uh, trauma. I have some visual memory of Pacey, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Joshua Jackson. Right, Joshua Jackson. Yeah, but other than that, uh, no. This is one of my weird memory ticks. I know so much about Dawson's Creek. I've never watched a single second mm. of Dawson's Creek. I could sing the theme song. I know the actors who are in it. I know what their characters' names are. I, I don't know anything that actually happens in the show. <laughs> I, I wasn't weirded out uh, by any of it until you said you can think, sing the theme song. Oh, yeah. That's something. That's something. That's something. Support us on Patreon and you'll be able to hear me, Kyle Marshall, sing the Dawson's Creek theme song. Um, John Voight. He is the antagonist of the film. Coach Kilmer. He's the antagonist in everything. <laughs> he's the antagonist in life. He has had a long career, of course. His most well-regarded role is probably in Midnight Cowboy, but he did win an Oscar for Coming Home, where he played a paraplegic Vietnam War vet. The couple of years before this film, he had been in The Rainmaker, An Enemy of the State, two pretty decent films. Uh, since then, he's had some highs, like Zoolander, Ali, and Holes. Uh, but he's also starred in Super Babies, The Karate Dog, and Bratz the Movie. So Bratz was a hit. It was, uh, well, it was, a, it was a film. His conservative politics have made him an easy joke and an easy target in Hollywood, an industry that is definitely leaning left. Uh, but it's also put him at odds with his daughter, Angelina Jolie. He is a very loud Trump supporter. Upcoming is a film called Roe v. Wade, as well as the biopic Reagan, where he'll be playing a Russian. I was going to say, he might actually... No, he couldn't pull off Reagan. Uh, not anymore. If it was like 10, 15 years ago, he probably could. If this was still 1999, he could play a Reagan, probably. Well, I don't know. Having uh, We'll see in Varsity Blues. What... <laughs>
I hear that he actually based his performance off of Reagan in Varsity Blues. So, all right, well, I'm gonna write that down, and we'll see. How <laughs> we'll we see feel about it. Paul Walker. So he had made a bunch of TV appearances, but the year before, he had starred in Meet the Deedles, which is a movie I only know from the DVD cover that I saw in Blockbuster constantly when I went into there when that was a thing. Still, he'd also been in a bit part in Pleasantville the year before movie that I, I happen to really like uh, after this he would be known for the horror film franchise joyride uh, and his dramatic turn in flags of our fathers but like absolutely his most famous role is of brian o'connor in the fast and the furious which surprisingly became one of the biggest franchises ever in the history of films uh, but he would tragically die in a car accident in 2013 when he was only 40 years old his last film was Furious 7, released in 2015. I'm a huge Fast and Furious fan. Me that, too. The irony of a car accident is not lost to me, but uh, it was resurrected at Fast Five. What a movie. Mm. I mean, that's a thing. It's like, that franchise is weird to me because I don't like the first two entries of oh, the no, Fast and the Furious franchise. And then from Tokyo Drift On, I was like, boom, I'm in. I'm in this franchise. I thought at the time, fourth, for me, four was the weakest. Mm. We, we've been, we started, Helen and I, my wife and I started rewatching them all. Um, and it's fun, like Fast and the Furious, how much they have to jack up the trucks to get civics to drive under them. It's oh, great. That uh, you, they have to, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And we never noticed that when you watch the first. Also, the great crime in the, in the first one is jacking trucks with yeah, stolen DVD players. I think it's a combination VHS DVD players Ooh. is what they're stealing. Well, that's that's a different game. I mean, if you could yeah. if you can play both the VHS both at the same and time the DVD, that's, that was a big deal. That's huge. And then in the end, it just gets fun. Yeah, exactly. They become <laughs> superheroes at the end of it. Uh, Ron Lester. Ron Lester had only one other film before this, which had been Good Burger. Oh. The, he would go on to do a bunch of TV shows and the movie, not another teen movie, but tragically, uh, Ron would die in 2016 due to liver and kidney failure. His last film to be released was something called Racing Legacy in 2015. So he played Billy Bob in this, in this film. Uh, Allie Larder, she is the uh, quote-unquote seductress of the movie, tries to take our hero off the main course. This was her very first film. Would go on to be in House on Haunted Hill later in the year, and then would be in such films as Final Destination, Legally Blonde, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, a few Resident Evil films. She has a recurring role on the TV series The Rookie as Dr. Grace Sawyer. That's a show that stars Nathan Fillion, and will be seen in the upcoming film The Last Victim. That's Ali Larder. Helen and I remember most from her role in Heroes which was a great TV show we got into. First season was First season's great. Yeah. And then it goes very, very downhill very quickly. I should have uh, done a thing. We watched one season of it, and then when it came back, we stopped watching it. But uh, (laughs) first season is incredible. Uh, Lastly, we have Amy Smart. This is the person who plays Jules. She is the love interest, the girlfriend of our main hero. She'd already been in Starship Troopers a couple of years earlier to this, would go on to be in Road Trip, Rat Race, and The Butterfly Effect in the early 2000s. As well, she had a recurring role on the TV show Felicity, but in recent years, she had a recurring role in Justified, a great, great TV show. Uh, And the next movie she'll be in is Tyson's Run, about an autistic boy who strives to become a marathon champion. Mm. Uh, This was written, this movie was written by W. Peter Illiff. His biggest credit before this movie came out was in 1991, Point Break. He wrote Point Break. But he also wrote Patriot Games, one of those Jack Ryan movies. Uh, And then there's these huge gaps in his credits. I'm guessing that like maybe Varsity Blues, but probably more to it, Point Break just had a bunch of royalties that he just got and lived off of for a while. There's two projects in production. The one that I'm going to, I am going to mispronounce this as I'm reading it. The Untouchable Nicolino Loche about a boxer and then the Bayou, which is described as a young street soldier must choose between his mentor working for the crime syndicate who has taken care of him and a 15-year-old runaway girl that they have enslaved. I so that's what he's writing. I want to comment on that, but I'll say at the beginning, uh, it's just, yeah, it seems like a pseudonym. I mean, Point Break and Varsity mm-hmm. Blues, this man's a, a master writer. He's a renaissance man right there, here. And there's no way that he didn't continue writing something, or she, right? We mm-hmm. don't know. Pseudonyms are I'm, fascinating. I'm pretty sure by looking at the picture are, if I was to look on IMDb somehow before I, we started recording this, I'm pretty sure it was a male. Of, of them. <laughs> the, the, the machine is mad at us. Um, okay, so 
This is directed by Brian Robbins. This was his second ever film. His first film was Good Burger. Oh. That's what he directed. That's probably how Ron Lester became <laughs> uh, hired onto this job. He would go on to direct the cinematic classic Ready to Rumble a few years after this, but he also did a few Eddie Murphy films, Norbit and Meet Dave. His last credit ever, as of this recording, is A Thousand Words, which is another Eddie Murphy movie that was released in 2012. Mm. Okay. The budget of this movie was $16 million. That's $16 million in 1999 dollars. I should point that out. It got a grand total of $52 million at the box office. $2 million of that was international. So it made most of its money here in North America. It makes sense. Likely, if we break down further, uh, 98% uh, in the southern United States. But uh, that's just me being <laughs> well, an idiot. Okay. Maybe. That's, that's you bringing your own baggage to this. <laughs> Let's get into it here then. What was your takeaway having watched Varsity Blues for the first time as a very late 20s man? Well, Varsity Blues. I definitely, going into it, did a lot of meditation work to try to remove as much bias in my mind as mm. possible. And uh, you know what I found fascinating, uh, top to bottom, I mean, uh, we can get into the nitty gritty, is that it, A, it's not as terrible as I presumed it would be. Mm -hmm. B, it told sort of a age-old existential sort of storyline, but in a very, very cutesy teenage way, uh, dodging a lot of big punches. And, you know, three, that doesn't make sense. Um, that, uh, you know, I didn't mind having watched it at the end. I don't feel like a lesser person. <laughs> um, and people's performances are actually quite reasonable for the expectation of uh, what movies were in that era. I, I actually kind of liked it. Interesting. Yeah, I have to say, so again, I never watched this growing up. This is not a movie that I sought out to see. At this point in my life, in 1999, I would have been 16 years old. And so I was pretentious enough to believe that I only watch films. I don't watch movies. I was one of those kids. Uh, so at this point, I probably would have refrained from it a whole lot. Watching it now as an adult, there's absolutely, there is, I think, pacing problems. There's tone problems. There is uh, the way that they treat certain subjects. is like, ooh, man, that would not fly today. But I agree in the sense that I don't think it's as bad as I was expecting it to be. I was expecting this to be, uh, I'm, I'm desperately trying to think of a film off the top of my head, but something that is just like soul crushingly bad. And this is just like, well, I mean, there's a couple of fun moments here at least. And it, the message in it of itself is not in itself bad. <laughs> uh, I just think, honestly, there's the execution of it. There is just some things that don't add up to its whole that I feel that there's like, that's almost the, the thing that makes me upset by it even more is that there's these elements that I think could be made into a great film and they just are left there to kind of wither and die on the vine. They're not uh, able to be mixed together to be satisfying at the very end. You know, listening to I, I just had this thought. Uh, you remember, you know, we're watching it. Uh, we got to watch together on date, which was nice. And we just finished watching it here on my couch. Yes, that's and, right. And... Um, you know, I thought when we started that I'd seen the movie before. And as we were watching it in the end, I, I realized I was thinking about these so-called subsequent harder-hitting drama versions of the same story, football. Mm -hmm. But those ones were suicide, addiction, the competitive nature of sports, etc. And so I'm trying to contextualize this as 1999. It's, you know, before you know 9-11, before a lot of the cynicism is in there. Um, yeah, like you said, pacing the so-called comedic bits thing with the teacher you know mm. the roles men and women are supposed to play in it are very very awkward as mm. uh watching it now but um it's a it's kind of a fascinating movie there's still a lot of yeah like i think the most fascinating thing about it is looking at it through the lens of current day things i just would not have picked up had i watched this in 1999 exactly. and i think i don't think that even adult reviewers would have picked up in 1999 so just as an example I think that our culture as a whole has gotten to a point where like concussions, like we know the drastic repercussions of just getting your bell rung, which is what it, how it would have been phrased to me when I was playing football. Why was I playing football? Because I was forced to. Um, that's not entirely true. I did enjoy it. <laughs> but I was, I was like also, you know, in band and I was, you know, watching... Um, 
You don't have Arching to justify. Rooms. You don't have I'm to trying justify. to justify. You don't have okay, to justify. so I was uh, I was an enigma wrapped in a mystery, David. Is what I'm trying to say. Well, open that box. Regardless, I mean, you we think of concussions in a very different way nowadays, uh, especially when we see like football players and me being like the closet wrestling fan I am. Those people who get into their fifties and can barely walk anymore because we were cheering them on getting smashed in the head by metal objects constantly or in the football's case we're getting people to like just have like aftershocks and like car crashes in front of us and we now know the the effects that that plays on the human mind and so i i thought that they were going to actually address that and it doesn't really like they, they kind of sort, and sort of they, they and then it's there. like a joke at the very end is really what it ends off on but the element is there like that's an interesting interplay where the movie is not saying that it's right that the coach is forcing these players to continue to go on, uh, but it doesn't go the full way of being like a straight condemnation of the practice of football either. That's the fascinating thing. It's uh, the writer uh, clearly is aware and sensitive to those issues, but whether through the editing process or through the idealism of Hollywood, whatever, you know, however deep we want to take this in a philosophical and sociological thing, they have to pull back because it's the late 90s. And so they bring everything. I mean, the suicide, competitive nature, even some sexual sort of like tension stuff. I, I would even go so far as to be like they kind of bring up like racism. Yeah. They bring up like uh, needing to get out of your small town because otherwise you kind of get trapped there. So yeah, there's there's stuff that they're bringing up. Yeah, they're aware of everything, and then it becomes uh, they yeah they just pull the punch. It's kind of like oh we know, and then okay thanks for thanks for giving us you know us your money and uh, enjoy the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the because I mean, at the end of the day, like it seems like the movie is setting this idea up that hey, you know, football is not the be all and end all of life. Like, we should not be uh, looking at it as if this is going to save everyone. Yet, at the, the climax of the film, football is them all coming everyone. together. Yeah, is football saves everyone. Like, that's basically what they're doing. I actually find that years after this something that kind of distills all those ideas into something much more powerful is friday night lights whether you're talking about the movie or the tv show i'm much more familiar with the tv show uh but they do go into those places and they really take that to its most logical conclusion in like very affecting for me at least drama where Football is there, but it's actually not even like the primary reason why that show exists. It's all about all the actual characters in their lives outside of football, and football plays a portion of it. Uh, but you can see how every person's life is affected outside of it and on <laughs> on the field too. Yeah, anecdotally, I mean, I don't I don't know if there's been any studies about this, but you know, growing up watching movies, I used to clearly love movies a lot. But that change to from idealism to cynicism is. You know whether it's tied to 9/11 or just this general uh, evolution of our culture, but there's a point in which, for example, critical ratings became about how deep, disturbing, and gross you could make an issue, as opposed to how well it's shot or how a narrative is or you know what the resolution is. And I feel like uh, comparing those two things. I mean, that's the movie I was thinking about. Uh, I had watched, and when the scene comes where uh, the pig appears in the house and uh, Dawson runs out to, uh, you know, intercede. And that scene almost becomes comedic in, mm -hmm. in today's context. At the time, maybe people are crying in the theaters because, you know, maybe that's a love. I, I didn't really connect even with the, with the large center. I can't remember his name. but Billy Bob. Billy Bob, right. Um, but if you've connected with him, that scene can become very, very powerful. Uh, but watching it now, it's, I mean, not parody. That's a little harsh, but there's something, yeah, there's something missing in the way that whole thing works. Well, I, I think part of the reason is, is that the movie does not allow us to really understand most of our characters. This is like the type of screenwriting where it's like, we know that Mox is a smart kid because he's reading, he's reading Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut yeah. It's like, okay, fine. Like, okay, I get what you're doing. You're doing this shorthand to be like, he's not like every other football player out there. Uh, and then like the coach is like, we he's a caricature he, he's a caricature like we know that it's important for him to like to win the championship and stuff and that's consumed him but we don't ever get into that and be like well why is it so important to him well even that it's fascinating because i think the writing is aware like that last scene that john voight's in mm -hmm. brings that idea of him not being able to let go of something but then 
he's just off the screen. It's right. over. Oh, well, I mean, and then talking about like off the screen forever, you have, um, is it Amy Smart? So it's Allie Larder, the one who like tries to seduce him by putting like whipped cream over her, you know, genitals and other privates to try and seduce him. And basically because it's like, hey, my other boyfriend is hurt. He was a star quarterback. My only ticket out of here is to like jump aboard your rocket and get out of here. And that's an interesting take. But after that scene where he's like, you know what, I'm not going to have sex with you. It's like, we never see her again. Well, there's that one thing where well, I guess she kisses walks him in, in the, in the hallway. But well, after that, it's like literally never see her again in this film. Well, there's a, a fascinating thing I've been thinking about there. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. The fascinating thing I'm thinking about there is that she comes into the hallway and at the surface, it becomes this thing where, um, you know, she kisses him and creates that next so-called uh, tension with the mm -hmm. romantic narrative, et cetera, et cetera. But when she comes in, she's um, reformed. Mm -hmm. Like her body shape, her clothing, she's like almost right. nun-like. You know, I'm just thinking... Well, this goes back, and I don't think that we've even fully gotten out of that, but there is still that idea that has been around in actually English literature for tons and tons of years, which is either like you're the virgin or you're the whore. Like there's no in-between about that, right? So it's like, okay, I'm going to stop using sex. Now I'm this virginal, chaste like person because... You know, God forbid you have sex ever in your life. <laughs> no, but yeah, just don't, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I've sorry. seen enough horror films. That is when you die. <laughs> so he was he would be proven wrong here, but I just wanted to bring this up because again, as a big film nerd, uh, Roger Ebert was like my guy. I just liked reading his reviews. Not that I agreed with him in everything that he wrote, but at least I could understand his thought process behind it. He wrote a two-star review of varsity blues out of five in that era no out of four for him oh he was weird in okay. that case he did okay. it out of four stars Ahead of his time okay so he kind of goes through actually a lot of the stuff that we talked about in his review it was interesting because i just read it here right now for the very first time and um <laughs> he goes through a bunch of things that we've listed about like this movie seems to be interested in other things besides just like your standard like growing out on the field and he says, all of this sounds as if Varsity Blues is a good movie, and parts of it are, but the parts never quite come together. Scenes work, but they don't pile up and build momentum. Vanderbeek is convincing and likable. Voight's performance has a kind of doomed grandeur, and the characters are seen with quirky humor. The movie doesn't quite get over the top, but you sense that Brian Robbins has the right instincts and is ready to break loose for a touchdown. I guess Brian Robbins is still looking for that touchdown. Maybe a, maybe at least a two point conversion. His, his work on two new releases coming out. To... No, that's the director. Ah. So the director oh, basically no, hasn't I, paid I thought you said for... the writer was okay. Okay, mm -hmm. excuse me, Robin. I, I, yeah, it's it's interesting how much I was kind of rooting for this movie at the halfway point, and it just never kind of quite get there. I have some other points that I've written down here as notes. <laughs> I just want to point it out there. We haven't really talked about Paul Walker very much here, but he's like the star quarterback who gets injured. And then, of course, um, James Renderbeek is able to come in and then starts to get kind of corrupted. I just wanted to point out Paul Walker, very attractive in this movie. I just want to say he's a very attractive person when he was in his younger years. I always thought that he'd be one of these guys. And I think I was correct, except that he uh, killed himself in a car. But uh, he was too good looking in his youth and represented too much of the, like it works in this movie he's like this adonis pretty boy thing but when he took lead roles in other projects it's just he's like a almost cartoonish because mm. he's like a he's like a drawing but i always thought that at some point if he turned if he turned 40 and you, you get a little roughed up and you get aged that he actually he has like just not a bad actor he's actually got a lot of things that he's capable of doing and uh, he always struck me as a person and this always sounds like I'm being like super mean to actors when I say this, but I think it's just true for a lot of a lot of people, which is some people are meant to be supporting players, meaning that they just do really well. And when you put them in the role of lead actor, they have to support an entire movie. And that's just a different skill set. Um, and some people can go back and forth. I always found Paul Walker way better in supporting roles. I think when he didn't become the forefront of the Fast and the Furious franchise where he was just like part of the the, the, the mixture. Team. It was great. He was awesome. Like I loved him in that role. But when he was like the lead of those movies, it's like, okay. <laughs> well, that, I think that's, yeah, I, this is why Fast Five is a fascinating thing. I mean, if I remember correctly, uh, he's leading the movie until the reveal. Right. There's something I'll have to ponder whether Paul Walker could have been. It could have been. Can we talk about the stripping scene? 
Because it is the worst, <laughs> like the not just because like from an, even the sexism point of view, which it which it is, but for those of you who maybe have not seen or still listening to this review, you have a scene where they get together these high school kids. They are in high school. They go to a strip joint somehow because they're able to get in, even though they're not twenty one. Because I think that's what you had to be in the states. And then their very attractive teacher comes out and does a strip dance because apparently it's a stripper on the weekends. Of course, dancing to Hot for Teacher because this has to be like as on the nose as you possibly can get. Yeah. But that would have been bad in and of itself. But the fact that she recognizes her students are there, continues on with the striptease and then has drinks with them afterwards is like this has gone completely out the window of being like something that could actually happen in real life. Yeah, it's I think it's supposed to be cartoonish comedic, but. It's also supposed to be this downward fall of uh, Vanderbeek's character. Right, because he's getting more and more corrupted. But it's weird because it's such a big leap. I mean, he has this martyr moment with the uh, with the cream whipped cream bikini. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to break up with his girlfriend. I think this was the order. And then all of a sudden he's like, you know, fuck it. Let's go get drunk and do some stuff. Meet me at a secret location. And so when that scene is building, I'm thinking it's going to be one of these motivational speeches where we're going to get one for the Gipper. And instead they end up at this bar. And then I'm thinking, oh, maybe he knew that the teacher, because he has that moment where he's like, how does a teacher drive a Mustang, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But then everybody's surprised. And like I said, it just, it plays out so strange and awkward and and it's long. I I think that segments, I mean. It goes on for a while. Oh my God. And then they come out of a strip club at 7 a.m., which doesn't make a lot of sense either. It's like a, like a post-rave moment on a game day, which leads to the uh, dramatic trip and fall. I don't know. That whole thing was uh, awkward mm-hmm. and uh, almost I, would have made me consider just standing up and leaving. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, again, trying to put this into context is sometimes hard because... As a 16-year-old, would I have been titillated and be like, oh, that's really funny. Like, their teacher is a stripper. And then, ha, ha, ha. Nowadays, it's just like, after all the different cultural evolutions that we've gone through, not only does it feel tone deaf to uh, a modern audience, it just feels like, what were they thinking? Like, this is, it doesn't really even come off as funny as so much as like, I don't know, rewarding these guys for like staying out and and that sort of thing, or blaming the teacher because she should have sent them home. I'm not even really sure what tone they're trying to strike with it. Yeah, it's it's weird. Even, you know, before we get it, yeah, like about how the lack of female character development center, but that's kind of standard for the night, especially for these bro football sports movies. I'm thinking of myself as a 20-year-old sitting there and watching this strip scene. I think it would just feel awkward in general. There's nothing funny about it. They don't go on the old 90s tropes of like maybe someone's... I mean, they do that one part where... um, once Billy Bob gets up on the stage, I think that was actually kind of funny. Mm. Uh, so I was enjoying the beginning of that part because they were just being imbecilic and then it just, it fell apart. Well, it's interesting. Something I was mentioning to you while we were watching it, you know, just now, was the idea that in a way, I feel like what Varsity Blues is trying to do is a small adaptation of Henry V uh, from Shakespeare. And if, you, if you're not familiar with that, it's essentially... This idea of can like a good man become king, but even more than that, can a good king be a good man? And you see him struggling with that, right? Because he doesn't want to play football. He's just like, I'm. it's three months that I'm off to university. I can focus on my studies there and I never have to look back again. This is really my father's dream, not my dream at all. This is like all Shakespeare stuff inside that play. Um, except for the football part. And then of course he becomes one and he becomes corrupted by the power that it gives and he feels like he's like, owed this this stuff he even has a soliloquy halfway through it he's in the convenience store and is literally like talking to himself should i do this should i go to this person's house and like have sex with her even though i'm with my with my girlfriend uh he's literally speaking out loud almost to the camera we find out that his little brother is there too but i mean it basically is him talking to the camera struggling through this and so in a way i wish that they had leaned more into that idea of this being like a shakespearean tale but told through football instead it would have been a more i think interesting movie overall it's interesting now so listening to you i think it's fascinating to think about the brother and and going back to this idea of what the writer at least in its origin Mm -hmm. was sensitive to and may have intended and whether it was just a Hollywood editing process that's kind of broken this movie. 
I yeah, just to break in before you finish your thought, I am curious of if there was like a lot of more information they filmed that they just cut out of the movie that would make more sense where there or at least the Snyder cut is what I'm trying to say of Varsity Blues. It's, so so like thinking about the brother and his weird uh, pop ups as you know, you would think that as an American movie, if they were going to add a spiritual thing, you know, for example, uh, Vanderbeek's character uh, turning away the the lust and then her being reformed, that feels like a very Christian rhetoric. But the brother keeps appearing as different iterations of different spiritual genres, which is actually kind of surprising, I thought. You know, the first scene, he's on a cross, and I thought, okay, well, here we go, you know, uh, sort of Protestant fundamentalist, you know, his, U.S. history. But then he's like, I don't know if he was a Buddha at one point, but he, he plays so many different uh, religious and spiritual roles. Well, I think part of that too is him trying to make his dad think he's quote unquote crazy so that he doesn't have to go out for peewee football. But this is the thing, I mean, I can't remember the narrative or the context of it in the film, but I think as a writer, it's fascinating to include that. Mm. And it at least told me as I was going through it, another reason why I didn't, uh, I mean, other than the impending doom of the world, uh, just get up and stop you know, turn off the movie, is uh, just watching whether the brother would play a role in Vanderbeek's salvation, essentially. And I don't, you know, that's also a lost plot in the end, but it's kind of just hanging there in the background that his brother's actually maybe enlightened, air quotes, enlightened, and living on the side, not affected. I mean, you brought up this idea that Vanderbeek's character doesn't want to play football, but I, I don't know if that's expressed. I mean, he's great at football. He, there's that scene where he intentionally destroys his father's face Right to punish yeah. him, but that's not this idea of him being kind of like a skinny bookworm. You know those old tropes of what a nerd yeah. might be, hanging in the back. But then he becomes something. He's actually already this warrior, um, a reluctant one, a philosophical one, presumably uh, one that actually pines to actually play in some of his interactions with his friends at the beginning. Yeah, there's just there's a lot of confusing things that don't really <laughs> that don't yeah. really add up there. Um, the last thing I will bring up here, I think, is just the actual like climax of the movie. You have this coach who is very obviously like giving some sort of like steroids to his players. He's making them play hurt, forcing them to get onto the field. And then it's like the come to Jesus moment where he's like, no, you're not going to give this other player another injection. Like, do not do that. I will walk out of here if you do that. And then, like the whole team like rallies around James Vanderbeek's character of Mox and um performs this insurrection and then they as a team go out and play the other team uh, without any of the coaches present i think that that's an interesting idea the moment itself is dramatically filmed i don't understand why the rest of the team rallies behind this james vanderbeek character because it seems like he's only cared about the two or three other characters that have names in the script and he doesn't really interact with the rest of the team. He's actually even been shown to be kind of a little bit selfish for him and like his close circle of friends. And so that moment a little bit fell flat for me because it's like, I don't get why everyone is rallying behind this guy. I can understand why one of them would be Billy Bob. Obviously they had that heart to heart. Like uh, it sounded like Billy Bob was going to commit suicide. He was talked out of it. So I get him. I don't get how anyone else would want to be rallied by that one speech that's given in the locker room. I think that's the, a bit of a trap with these, you know, you see that in war films too. Uh, you can only focus on a small central cast and then finding ways to incorporate, uh, demonstrate visually their inspiration for the same themes that the character is going through can be, that's a bit of a challenge in and of itself. And so the, these background football players hardly make uh, any visual appearance on the screen. Even in the football game scenes, they're all mostly close-ups of this pickup truck crew. Um, mm -hmm whether they're doing good or evil. Um, I, I think that's, it's just, that's just a hard one. I, I don't know. I, I was watching that scene thinking John Voight's revealed to be using and dehumanizing people as objects for his own personal glory, uh, treating them like shit. People are betrayed. Um, Vanderbeek's character stands up and says, you know, we, we won't be treated like this. We're going to do it on our own terms and do exactly what you want, except, you don't get to be a part of it. So it's, it's kind of corny, but uh, yeah, I think actually the real moment is him standing up to his own dad that comes a little bit earlier because he shouts like playing football at West Canaan may have been the opportunity of your lifetime, but I don't want your life. And I think because a few other characters kind of 
say very similar things and like we don't want to stay here we don't want to always be here we want to leave and do bigger and better things not that i think that everyone who stays behind in a small town is like giving up on their dreams uh or it's a bad thing but i know for a lot of people it's like uh this is not where the rest of my life is going to be and we should encourage that as much as possible and if they find their way back then great i think that's really the the main moment of of our main star uh, but it kind of gets wrapped up into like the whole John Voigt mess that <laughs> doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, it's interesting because I, I see what you're saying. I was sensitive, I suppose, or aware of that attempt in that scene, but it didn't feel like that to me. Mm -hmm. It felt like another buildup to him assembling the courage to finally push back to the, to the so-called you know, final football scene anyways, as it were. But you're right. I mean, particularly in later movies or different movies, we've seen this uh, father-son relationship being so uh, crucial to these big character developments. But again, those are all very muddied in this movie. It's not that clear. It's hard to see whether the dad is happy or miserable. Yeah. You know, it's hard to understand, like, where does Vanderbeek get his uh, super brown scholarship intelligence from? Like, we don't get any idea of whether he actually studies. It seems to just hang around and make out his girlfriend, understands all the time. He reads Kurt Vonnegut. He, all the answers to life are in Kurt Vonnegut. Catcher in the Rye, right? No. Oh. Slaughterhouse Five. Ah, Slaughterhouse. Catcher in the Rye is uh, the other guy. Ah, shit. Who only wrote one book. Um, Enough. Okay, so the machine is making some noises here right now. I, I guess it wants us, it, it's like what we've said so far. It's, it's satiated itself. It's actually printing out this other receipt here. It says trivia on it. So it wants me to state to you some trivia. Well, apparently Paul Walker actually broke his leg during the filming of this movie. Incredible. Method. Method actor. Yeah. Uh, I want to know then, does that mean that that wasn't supposed to happen in the movie? which would be wild to think of if that whole plot line is only put in there because he broke his leg. Although if it was that way, then why wouldn't they just hire a new actor? Because Paul Walker was a nobody at that point. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know how that all shakes out. Here's something uh, actually pretty interesting. So the University of Toronto trademarked the name Varsity Blues oh, yeah. for its sports team in the mid-1980s. And U of T complained to the movie that it presented sports in a negative light and it sued Paramount Pictures. It they actually settled out of court for an undisclosed amount, but it set up eight scholarships for academically accomplished student athletes. So we could find out what that amount was. I guess so. We could, <laughs> there has to be public records. But I always thought that was interesting uh, coming from Toronto that, uh, yeah, the U of T, they've, when you're down on that street, it says Varsity Blues everywhere. And when that movie came out, I actually initially had this initial, like, there's a movie about a Toronto football team. But yeah, right, right. That's interesting. Uh, being growing up here in the West, I never heard that term in my entire life. Although, I mean, you would think I would, being that Toronto is the center of the universe. So It isn't? So we know about the two principal cast members who have passed away, Paul Walker and Ron Lester. But additionally, Joe Pickler, who played his little brother Kyle, has actually been missing since 2006. I don't know how to describe my eyes going wider, but that's... Right. I mean, even watching this kid play all these weird religious mm -hmm. figures and then it's disappearing. vanishing. It's almost like the, the poltergeist curse where like almost every main actor in that has either passed away or had some horrible mm -hmm. thing befall them. Lastly, in 2019, we know this big story. The FBI charged 50 people, including several celebrities, with conspiracy to fraudulently influence academic and athletic admissions decisions. Multiple news outlets reported that the FBI's internal code name for the investigation was Operation Varsity Blues. One of the movie's stars, James Vanderbeek, tweeted a wry response to the scandal in its name. If only there was a succinct turn of phrase these kids could have used to inform their parents they were not desirous of their life path. Mm. Mm. So, I'll say this about Vanderbeek. As he got older, we watched him in that that B in apartment 33 and then subsequently something else. Uh, yeah. He's a lot more intelligent and, and funny than I was giving him credit for in the Dawson days. So uh, I think at a certain point, there's like pretty self-aware. I mean, I guess the good ones are like super self-aware. It's like, I understand like where my place in entertainment lies. So uh, I like it when they can kind of play along or into the joke uh, a little bit. Here is the last message I am receiving here. Uh, apparently it needs us to each give a rating and then an average. What, what would you rate this movie out of 
five. Five. I can't even do the Ebert four and cheat. Um, hmm. Can we break it up into categories? It's got to be no, one it has to be one rating. Shit. Okay. I I think I would give it a. Can I do half stars? Can yeah, I go two you, and a half? You can do half stars. Yeah. I mean, not to be too much uh, copying uh, Ebert. I just think two and a half makes me feel the most comfortable. I feel like I want to give it a two, but it also feels a little vindictive. I want to give it a one just for my 20-year-old uh, self. But uh, I, I will definitely also put a footnote that I did not hate watching it, and I will no longer be embarrassed to talk about that I'd actually seen it. That's good to know. I am going to be vindictive. I'm going to give it two stars. <laughs> uh, so the average, because we have to round down, according to these instructions this machine has just given to me, that means that this movie will receive two stars. I'm going to make a letterboxed profile for our podcast so you can keep a track of all the movies we talk about so currently varsity blues is both the best and worst movie that we have seen so uh, i don't understand why do you think we have to watch varsity blues first i mean i don't want to speak for the machine but if, if if i may here i think that in a way what is testing us is to see through the lens of our modern day how did these films influence us how did we influence them and is there anything that we can learn from these movies, even though we are no longer in that actual time period itself? Can we learn things from these movies from years ago? Um, and and how has it shaped us going forward? Is that about right? I dream of Armageddon. You know what I think? I think, Machine, that you're vindictive. And I'll be wa waiting to see what we have to watch next. But uh, the fact that you made me watch Varsity Blues first will uh, not be forgotten. Oh, it is actually printing it out here. Apparently, we're going to be watching the movie Still Crazy. I don't even know what that movie is. No, I got, I got nothing. All right. Well, next week, we're going to be talking about Still Crazy. Until next time, I guess, feed the beast. I can go home now and finish my coffee? Ah, sure. Actually, can you move? help me move this back outside again? Oh, damn it. Lift with your back. Just lift with your back. Ah!